If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Jonah chapter 3 as we continue our series in the book of Jonah. And uh, before we just kind of jump into that, I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about uh, just kind of some church stuff. Um, We are uh, pointing that the wrong way. There we go. Um, Ooh, not there. Okay. Okay. Go back. All right. Um, We are um, in this whole COVID thing now for about four months. I just want to touch on just a couple of church business stuff before we jump in. Um, You know, when you do budget planning in uh, September, October, uh, you are not budgeting for a pandemic. And uh, our church is doing well financially. We can always do a little bit better. Uh, We appreciate your faithfulness and giving and things like that. Um, But with that in mind, uh, the elders a few weeks ago, um, per our Constitution, initiated a a line item for COVID-19. Our limit is 3,000. If I'm honest with you, at this point in time, we're probably going to go over that. And so what we need to do is have a church business meeting which we can't do. Uh, So it just presents this problem of uh, what we can do, what we need to do. We are being very uh, tight with the budget, but uh, when this first thing first hit, the kind of thought was, how do we keep this thing going for three weeks? Uh, And now when we're months into this and we're going, how long is this going to be? How do we invest for something that's going to last for a long time? So, you know, equipment gets purchased, things like that. And so uh, hand sanitizers, Rich and I were joking about, uh, I just, you know, nobody knew how much bleach we really needed to put in a budget, you know, uh, hand wipes were not something that we thought of doing a separate line item for, but probably could have. So we're, we're working, uh, you know, faithfully to, uh, to watch those numbers, but when we come out of this and we can have a business meeting, we'll go over those type of things with you. We appreciate you being with us. Uh, we love you. It's hard in times like this to, to do some of the things that we need to do. Um, to celebrate Ruth's life um, in a way that it honors somebody's dedication to the mission field, uh, to the church, and to the gospel. Um, it's hard to say goodbye this way. So we are doing the flowers as representations of just uh, people that wanted to be there. Um, I'll be here tomorrow morning from 8 to 9 to collect some more uh, before I head over to uh, the graveside by about 930 and then um, also, uh, there is an open house at the Wares, as, as Rich mentioned earlier. If you have questions about that, you can message he or I, and we will just kind of jump into that. So, uh, we appreciate your faithfulness. We appreciate your patience. Um, you know, doing a live stream, uh, again, this is one of those things uh, they didn't really teach in seminary. I know that churches are doing it. Uh, have been doing it, but for us, there was a huge rush into this. I appreciate those who have worked hard. I know that sometimes the sound goes in and out and different things, and uh, we we actually had a huge change last week and the change this week, and the providers we're using, trying to do the best that we can to make it easy for you uh, to follow along. So thanks for hanging in there with us. Um, Let's jump into uh, Jonah chapter 3. Kids, uh, on your sheet. Uh, the, the phrase uh, this week is, uh, God is a God of second chances. God is a God of second chances. So we looked in chapter one, you can't run from God. 
um, and you can't ignore your neighbor. And then in chapter two, we were talking about learning to die to self. And then we were also last week learning to remove the log in our own eye. As we move into uh, the second part of of chapter uh, three, this uh, idea of uh, God is a God of second chances. And I was just this morning just kind of uh, thinking about this idea of second chances. And I thought about how many different words we have that kind of, or phrases we have that relate to second chances. So I'm a golfer. And so on the, on the golf course, we call that a mulligan, okay? Uh, so it's when you, you, you duff a shot and you don't want to put that on the scorecard, so you throw another ball down or you use your, what we call our Nike wedge when we kick it out from behind the tree so that we have a clear shot at the green, okay? So that's called a mulligan. Uh, when we're on the kids, when we're on the, the playground maybe and we're playing a game, we want a do-over. Uh, if we're playing basketball, we want a second shot. If we're doing theater or drama, we want another take or take two. Um, If we're older and we feel like we've kind of messed up for a long period of time, we want a new lease on life. Uh, If uh, we are in school and we do bad on a test or we missed a test, we want a makeup exam. Uh, When we get to the end of the day and we don't like how our day worked out, we just say, there's another day, right? Um, and as we get older, we might use the phrase, we want a chance to redeem ourselves." Um, a few others that I found, and I still, I, this one doesn't set with me. I've never heard this one, but one that kept coming up in my searches was take another bite of the cherry. Now, how many bites are you taking of a cherry? A cherry is one bite item for me. Um, so, or, or we might use the phrase back to square one, right? When we say back to square one, we say well, we're going to start all over again. In our culture, we love the opportunity, the idea of second chances, do-overs, mulligans. And we we love that idea, but I would just, you know, kind of, and we love that God gives us second chances, right? He's a God of second chances. Uh, We are new creations we're going to look at today. And I think that we we all love that theology, but let me just ask you, when is enough enough? I mean, when does God say, I've given you a second chance, I've given you a third chance? Right? When do we as parents, you know, with our kids, try again, try again, try again, and finally you say, let me just do that for you, okay? So when do we come to that point where, where enough is enough? And I think we're all somewhat afraid of that point, right? God's going to be done giving us another chance. And this is just a great example in Jonah chapter 3 of how gracious and faithful God is. So Jonah chapter 3, let's look at it, and then uh, we'll... Uh, We'll dig in. Um, Okay. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what, a second time, right? Jonah's getting a second chance. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city Uh, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Last week we talked about, is Jonah trying to just sabotage this with a poor message? Was there more to the message that's not recorded here? Um, Did Jonah do other things? It seems like this is the text here is just trying to show how basic it is and how great God is in the response. And the people of Nineveh, after this really poor sermon, Believe God. 
They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Now, when you read that and you know about Nineveh and the, and the history there, when you read that, you're supposed to kind of go in your, in your heart, uh-oh, something bad's about to happen. And so we're, we're surprised, and he arose from his throne, right? Now, here's his, he's getting up, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. That's the surprise there. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. I just, that part of the story, I just want to picture Like I get people going on a fast and putting on sackcloth, but then I try to picture getting my dog, you know, not to eat all day and put on sackcloth. I'm like, that's a lot of work, right? I mean, he's the cow is not gonna get that. But but here, I mean, you just kind of see the the how widespread this this act of of feast fasting and and repenting is. And let them call out mightily to God. Now notice this. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Listen for that phrase. And from the violence that that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his first fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of his disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. There's a play on words in the Hebrew in chapter 3 that we don't easily see, so let me point it out to you. In verse 4, in Jonah's sermon, it says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be, in the ESV, overturned. And then when it talks of the people's repentance, let everyone turn, it's actually the same Hebrew word. And as you look at that Hebrew word in the context of the the whole Old Testament, it can be used both ways. It can mean to be overthrown as a nation, or it can mean to overturn your heart and repent. And so Jonah preaches the sermon. He is not thinking of repentance. He is thinking of Nineveh being overthrown. And so there's a play on words where in a sense, Jonah is preaching hellfire and brimstone, if to put that into modern terms, right? And what, what res, response is, they don't get hellfire and brimstone, they get... And so it's a better picture of repentance. Remember in chapter two, uh, in Jonah's prayer, I question whether it was a prayer of repentance because the word repent isn't there, but it is for Nineveh. It is there for Nineveh. They repent, they change. So what we're going to look at this morning um, is just this idea of second chances. And we're going to talk about a great God who does great things, that is give second chances, through ordinary or not so great people. Right? Jonah is not the greatest prophet here. However you picture him, he's not the greatest. In fact, he's not, he's not listed in Hebrews Hall of Fame. He's not... 
He's not really even listed anywhere in the God's word in a positive sense. And yet, one of the greatest revivals of all time recorded here in Jonah chapter three. So a great God who does great things through ordinary or not so great people, and that encourages me. I recognize my own shortcomings. So first of all, we have a great city. Um, Why was Nineveh so great? In fact, it says it here in the text, exceedingly great in chapter three, verse three. Um, It was called the great city in chapter one, verse two, and it's called a great city in chapter four, verse 11. So what's so great about Nineveh? Well, first of all, it's great in size. It it seems to be a really large city. It's described as a three-day journey. Now, as I said last week, this may be just kind of an exaggeration, right? You can walk about 20 miles a day. Uh, Jonah was a prophet. There was no cars in those days. He was probably used to walking. And so maybe this is, a, this is kind of a, an exaggeration, but it's a big city. It, it's, it's big in size. It's also, most importantly, it's great in population. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 11, as God is talking uh, to Jonah, he said, and should I, should I not have pity on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. That's a a big city back then, okay? Now, uh, I did a little bit of research. Uh, I forgot what the sign says on the outskirts of town now, but they are projecting that Hillsborough is over 100,000 now. 112 or more we'll see in this next census. So, you know, Nineveh, in a sense, is about the size of Hillsborough, okay? And when you put Hillsborough and Sense and Beaverton and Portland, I mean, we're talking about a lot of people. And one of the things that when we talk a lot of, about a lot of people, and especially those of you who grew up in Hillsborough, okay? And you've been here for a long time. And you drive by and you can say, I remember when that was all fields. I remember when those were orchards over there. And I remember when that wasn't there. And I remember when you could just drive right down the street, there was no stop sign. There was not all these people here. And you know, we, we say it in a sense of like, there's just too many people. But when God says, there is 120,000 people in this city, he is saying there is a lot of people that are created in the image of God. There are a lot of people whose eternal destination is in the balance. There's a lot of people that I love, a lot of people that I created. In fact, God doesn't even sit there. He goes, there's 120 pounds and cows, just so you know. There's cows there too. And you know, sometimes when we look at large crowds, we go, eh. But I don't think that's the way God looks at them. God sees the people that he has created. As we're reading through Matthew in our reading, I I just highlight when I get to it, there's so many times uh, that it's just recorded where Jesus looks at the crowd and what's his response? And he had compassion on them. May our hearts be more like Jesus. Nineveh is also um, great in its influence, okay? When you have a city that's, that's, is that big, right? It, it, the cultural center, uh, it has influence. It's probably great in power. They were a great military power. They were feared. 
Um, And what we also know from history and even from uh, the book of Jonah is that they are also great and evil. Right? Even the king, it's, it's great that, he, I mean, Jonah's sermon, as far as we can tell, all it says is, in 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overturned. And the king responds, and he issues a decree, and he says, uh, let them feed, and you know, don't do this, and sackcloth, and all these things. And he says, let everyone, what? Turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. He recognizes it. What are we known for? Evil, violence, power. We need, he doesn't need to be told to repent of that. He knows what it is. So they understand their evil. Now just look at that, that list and I just want to challenge our own hearts. Um, you know what? Hillsborough, Oregon, the United States, great in size, great in population, great in influence, great in power, and also great in evil. This, all this could be said of us. And we need to recognize that. Now, some of us, you know, we like to look at the positive and say, boy, look at, look at this influence. Look how we've influenced this. Look how we've protected this. Look how we, I mean, what was, what was yesterday all about other than blowing up a whole bunch of money? Um, my, my, my daughter's so, you know, so frugal with her money, and uh, we, we, we lit off some fireworks, and our neighbors were lighting off some of the illegal fireworks, right? And so our family, every time one went boom, somebody went, well, there went 20 bucks, right? That was it, right? I don't know how much, it, that much they cost. But we're just blowing up money. And so we, we sometimes forget to think. Uh, we think positively. We celebrate the things that our nation has done. And, and sometimes we forget to, to repent of and call out the things that are wrong. What did this great city need? Um, well, I mean, we see here they needed repentance. They, we, we, they needed revival. Um, or they needed judgment. And if that's true of Nineveh, could it be true of us as well? Either we need to repent or we are ready to receive God's judgment. And, and I would ask you, when you think of other nations or other people that you deem evil, do you wish, do you pray for the deliverance of your enemies or the destruction? In other words, do you hope that that nation is destroyed or that they repent? So what they need is prayer. What we need is prayer. That, and, and one of the things, one of the reasons why God, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies is it's really hard to continue to pray for somebody and hate them. And so we need to pray for those that we disagree with. And let's not even just take nations. How about the other side of the political aisle? Good night. Are those people that evil? Are they not also created in the image of God? Can we not pray for them? Whichever aisle that is. Do you believe God can revive a person, a church, a people group, a nation? Do you believe that? You know, what's amazing to me is we're talking about one of the most powerful nations on the planet, one of the worst sermons ever preached, and 
this huge, great revival. God can do great things through ordinary people. Some of the revivals uh, in our own uh, history, even in the United States, uh, can be recorded, have been recorded. And some of you have seen the video that I love to share. Uh, it's just a, a professor that uh, studies revivals and prayer. And uh, he, he is, uh, he's preaching at a conference. This is many, many years ago. I think it was down in Texas. And he actually mentions Portland, Oregon in the Second Great Awakening. And he talks about how in Portland, during the Great Awakening, businesses in Portland agreed together as a community, we are going to be closed from 12 to 1 so that people could go to the prayer meetings so as not to compete with business. Isn't that amazing? Happened right here in Portland. God can do great things through ordinary people. So we have a great city. Second, we have a great God. And uh, I would invite you to just uh, keep your finger here in Jonah and turn over um, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I just, I want to really kind of zoom in on this idea of this God of second chances. I talked about at the beginning is at what point does God stop giving second chances? And the reason why I mentioned that, it's kind of a negative statement. The reason why I mentioned that is because most people that I talk to over time believe that somehow they've reached that threshold. Whatever it is, I've messed up too many times. God can't forgive me. And then we talk about God's forgiveness in the Bible, and they, yep, 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 absolutely agree with that. I believe that for other people. And so I just, I want to just remind ourselves of what a great God we worship. Uh, Chris and I communicated a little bit uh, last week about what the theme of the sermon uh, was, but I mean, the songs could not have been any better. I mean, right, God of this city, uh, great is thy faithfulness, right? All these things are about this idea of this great God that we worship that gives us second chances. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's start at the bottom. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All of us need to stand before God and give an account. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, okay? We persuade others to change, but we, God knows who we are, and I hope it is known also uh, to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. Oh, man, can we just stop there for a minute? People boasting about outward appearances and not what's in the heart, Okay. Does, this, does God's word still apply today? Yeah, man, we can hear this. Verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, um, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus Christ, has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me just, we talked about this whole idea of dying to ourselves. Here it is in chapter five, verse 
15 of 2 Corinthians, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That is a description of the Christian life. From now on, therefore, verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Look, we don't look at you the same way. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to, uh, to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God who reconcile, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this new message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are in Christ new creations. Talking about a second chance. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but he made us alive. Talk about a second chance. We are new creation because of God's uh, great work. Because of God's great work, in verse uh, 18, it says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Because of God's grace, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling him to the world, not counting their trespasses against them. That's grace. And so there's this, in verse 21, he describes what I'm calling here the, the great exchange. His life, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. There's an exchange. He did it for us. Because of God's great Change. In verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he's a new creation. He is changing you from the old to the new. He is reshaping you, molding you into his image. We are new creations. Church, I've said this again and again, and I'll continue to say it. We need to stop addressing each other as old creations and address each other as new creations. We need to stop pointing out our old sin nature and point out who we are in Christ. We need to see people as changed. Now, because we are new creations, we also have a new mission. And here, that mission is described as being uh, the ministry of reconciliation. It's further described as being ambassadors. Now, I'm going to push on you a little bit, church, and, and that's my job. And I know some of you disagree with me, but you need to hear me first. I, I love fireworks. I love blowing things up. I, I, let, I let the kids do that, but I, I love watching it. I love seeing things explode. I love picnics. I miss the parade. Okay? I love our tr tradition of donuts and bacon here at the church that we didn't get to have on the 4th of July. I love the nation that I grew up in. I feel fortunate to have the freedoms that I have and have the experiences I have. But America is not God's chosen nation. America is not the new Israel. 
America is not the end result. I love living in a republic where we have people represent us. That is, that is a wonderful gift. But just so you know, eternity, does you don't get to vote. Okay, When we get to heaven, there is one king. He's not going to hold any elections. None of you are going to be running for office. So we don't even, in a sense, have the perfect political system. Best for the world that we live in, I think. Others would disagree. But listen, our goal here is not to represent the United States of America. He says specifically here, you're ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? I actually uh, went to high school uh, with a girl who married somebody who is, was an ambassador to Kenya. And, uh, and so I heard about some of the things that he did. And one of the things that they did, to, the job is to, you know, to show people what really America is all about and to be a positive influence. It's not, that, it's not to turn Kenya into America. It's so that people understand what America, and one of the things that he introduced to Kenya was Sesame Street. And I, it was just, this is a way that we, we taught kids, and he introduced Sesame Street, I believe it was Kenya, it might have been, but I, that's right. And I thought, wow, that's the representation of the United States, Sesame Street, right? But here, here's the idea. Look, you are not an ambassador for the United States of America, unless you actually have that job, maybe watching, I don't know. Most of you are not. You are an ambassador for the kingdom of God which is present and not yet. I don't, I don't need to fight with you over whether you should wear a mask or not. You know why? I'm just, I'm just obeying the rules of my government that they've put upon me, whether I think they're good or not, I'm obeying them. Not a biblical issue for me other than love my neighbor. What I want to, to share is what it really looks like to love other people. The kingdom of God is bigger than where we live. And so what I, the mission doesn't change. Uh, the mission is always been to go out and make disciples of all nations. The mission doesn't depend on our strength. I mean, it certainly doesn't depend on, on Jonah's sermon, does it? <laughs> certainly doesn't. You know, the mission should derive from our story. And what I mean by this is that Jonah is, seems to me to be happy in chapter 2 to receive God's rescuing mercy. But he is not willing to extend God's rescuing mercy to others. When we sing, great is thy faithfulness. When we talk about your mercies are new every morning. When we talk about God's forgiveness, his love, we just, oh, man, that, that should ignite our hearts. We should be so thankful. We should rejoice. We should also extend it to other people. Regardless of how messed up they are, regardless of where they live, regardless of their economic standing, regardless of the color of their skin, we should be quick to offer what God has so graciously given to us. I think of when we confess our sin, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive our sin. I don't know if you've been around the church for a while. If you grew up in the church, you probably know that verse. It's 1 John 1, 9. I, I memorized it when I was a kid. Again, when I was in junior high. Again, when I was in high school. Right? It was just one of those things. And, and just, just think about that. If we confess our sin, dependent on our response, we need to do something. He is faithful, amen, and just. That's kind of a scary word. And he will forgive our sin. What an incredible promise. He doesn't say, if you confess your sins three times. He doesn't say, if you give money. He doesn't say, if you cut yourself. He doesn't say, if you crawl on your knee. He just says, just confess your sin. And God will forgive it. That is an incredible promise. We have this, this new promise that, that we can come and we can, this great new promise, whatever you want to call it, that we, that we can repent and that God will respond. What does repentance look like? Now, back in Jonah, right, we have this, we have this word, overthrown and turn. And turn is a great word for repentance, okay? Um, and I've said before, what, what repentance means is to turn around, okay? He says, let everyone turn from, right, his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. The picture is God is looking down. He is angry. We are evil. So if we turn, then maybe God will turn. And so the king has some pretty good theology here. Okay, and so what does repentance look like for you and me? And we, what does it look like for us personally? What does it look like for us as a church? Uh, big C in, in the light of all the things that are, that are coming uh, in, our, in our nation. What does it mean for, for us as a nation? What, what, what repentance look like for us as a nation? First of all, and most importantly, and here's where most of us struggle, is simply just a consciousness of sin. In order to repent, you have to be conscious of the fact that there is sin. And the hardest part about that is none of us want to recognize that. That's hard. It's hard to say, well, you know, uh, I was mistaken. That was my fault. We, those words don't just roll off the tongue there. And what, what when you read God's word, and let me just... We just finished up Isaiah. I wasn't planning on this. Man, the end of Isaiah, parts of Isaiah were just so brutal in, in the description of who we are. I'm trying to see if I can just find that off the top of my head. But in, in, uh, it, we're described, he describes the people in so many different ways. Um, in, in the ways of, oh, it's not gonna, it's not gonna come to me just right off. But if you remember in the reading, they're described as a people that want to hear from God and seek righteousness. It's like, oh, that sounds good, but they're evil. You know, at one point God says, I don't want to hear their worship songs anymore. You, you know, I, I just they're, they're, it's in their heart. And so look, we have to be conscious of the sin that we are responsible for personally, corporately. And then we need to confess that sin. A confession of our sin. Now, repentance 
and confession uh, are, are two sides of a coin, but if you only have one side, it doesn't work. Does that make sense? Like I can say, um, I, uh, man, I confess that I was a jerk. Okay? People are like, yay, he's confessing that. It's about time. But repentance is, I need to stop trying not to be a jerk anymore. Like, I need to turn from that. Um, and so somehow in the church, we've just done the confession part sometimes, and like, oh, I blew it again, I lost my temper. Oh, you know, I, I didn't do that, or I should have done this, and we confess, but we don't change. What's clear from Jonah is that there's a change. Now, we don't know how long it is. And I thought, oh, you know, I was reading this uh, you know, we've been going through this, and, and I, I'm kind of a, sometimes a little skeptical, you know, so I'm like, did they really repent? You know, I mean, what did that look like? Did they go back to their evil ways? You know, when, how long did it last? Was it real? Are we going to see them in heaven? And Jesus says, just in our reading this week, Jesus says, you know what? The people of Nineveh will rise up and judge you. I'm like, oh, they're there, right? <laughs> they repented. And so, look, there's, there's a change that happens. And so there's, we're aware of our sin, we confess our sin, and finally, we change. From our sin, there should be change. Now, please hear me. Sometimes change is, what, two steps forward, one step back, right? We, it's not like we're never going to make that mistake again. But, but we should be moving towards change. So we have a great city, we have a great God, and then what we see is a great revival. And, uh, and so many people have pointed out in this passage, what makes for a great revival? Um, well, most people would say faithful preaching. Uh, I don't know that it's here, right? So just, um, you would hope, right, that there is some good preaching, that there is some good uh, expository ex- explanation of who God is. Um, but I don't know that I necessarily see that here. But as we look historically over most revivals, there was great preaching. I think what really comes down to is belief in God. What makes the change is that they heard the message and they believed God. It doesn't say they heard the message and they believed Jonah. It's really important there. They heard the message and they believed God. And so here's the point. Look, at some point in time, it doesn't matter what the right is saying or the left is saying. It doesn't matter what this church is saying or that church is saying. What it matters is what is God saying? And our belief needs to be in him. And then, in order to have a great revival, there needs to be action resulting from a belief in God. So we see this belief in verse 5. And in verse 7, it results in a proclamation. And in verse 10, it results in them uh, turning from their evil and God relenting. That's what a revival is. It's actions from the revival. Now, I mentioned this, uh, this recording I have on, on this message on revival, and some of you, many of you have listened to it. We've listened to it in prayer things in small groups, and, and uh, I um, need to come up with the name of it so you can look it up on YouTube. But uh, in the sermon, in this recording of the, of the Great Awakenings, and I think this is from the first Great Awakening, uh, he has recorded from newspapers that the, the a Great Awakening stopped work in the coal mines, and I can't remember in which country it was in. It was a foreign country. And its recorded reason 
is because the men's language changed so much that the beast that worked in the coal mine didn't understand the new commands. That's revival. Their foul language changed and the donkeys didn't know how to respond. That's amazing. Okay, so revival really results in change. In fact, there's recordings of crimes going down. And there's a newspaper article in one city where they're interviewing. He said, what are we doing with all the police? Because crime has almost ceased in the city. And the police chief's response is, well, we have several quartets. And uh, the churches call and they need a revival. And we send out this group over here. And we've got, they, the police became singing groups. That is revival. Okay, so there needs to be a change that comes from belief in God. And sometimes it means specifically turning from a specific sin. I think it's so important here that the, the king points out evil and specifically violence. That's what they were known for. There's a, there, there might be a specific sin. And I've been in ministry for many years. And what I have found over and over and over again is that in families, in areas of where we live, there are sins that are more prominent than in other places. If you look at your own family history and you say, man, what has been the greatest sin that continues to attack my family? I, I think you'll find some common themes, a common denominator. A place where, God, uh, where Satan has a foothold in your family. Churches. Man, I, I remember... Uh, a church that I was involved in and fortunately had grown up and moved away from. And, uh, and the pastor was accused of sexual sin. I was shocked, absolutely shocked. In the next three years in that church, three other staff people were accused and found guilty. It's like, oh man, somebody forgot to clean his own house and the rest of the house was sucked up into it. Turning from specific sins. A great revival is from faithful preaching, belief in God, action resulting from a belief in God, turning from specific sins, and then I would add, it's not here in the text, but I would add prayer. Uh, prayer, I believe, is one of the greatest things that we can do towards revival. Now, please don't, this has gotten some bad press lately. When people say pray, they go, oh, the church doesn't really want to do anything. Um, and let me, we're going to do a, a more in-depth study uh, on prayer coming out of Jonah. But let me just kind of remind you of this just real quickly before we, we move to application and action. Um, Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. Uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the next section of requests, you have to listen very closely, but he says, give us this day. Our daily bread. It doesn't say give me. Most of us have in our house, most of you have enough bread. I'm picturing our little bread area, which somebody got some, it's really overflowing right now, specifically in bread. 
I don't, I don't need to pray for bread for tomorrow. That's not what I was asked to pray. I was asked to pray, give us. If I have enough and I pray, give us our daily bread, then maybe God will bring people into my life that day that needs something. Maybe now I'm meeting the needs of somebody else because that's been my prayer and he might use me to answer that prayer. Okay, so prayer isn't just, let me just pray it and then forget about it. Prayer is praying for God to move and yes, even move through me. Okay, that's what I mean by that. Application and action. Um, I worship a great God who uses ordinary people to do great things. Therefore, I will pray for God to direct me into mission. Okay, I just led us there. Because I know I worship a great God, and because I know that God uses ordinary people, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to to see how God is going to direct me specifically into mission. Now, listen, um, that doesn't mean that we're, you know, it's what God is leading you into mission. What your mission is may not be my mission, but, but where is God leading you into mission? Second, I worship a great God who uses ordinary people to do great things. Therefore, I will believe God will use me. That seems really simple. And yet, I mean, it's really easy to say, okay? Let me me say it again. I worship a great God. I get that. Who uses ordinary people to do great things. I can see that. So I will believe God will use me. That's where the logic and the flow sometimes begins to fade. Well, yeah, I believe worship a great God and he uses ordinary people like my pastor. Believe me, he's really ordinary. Okay, I worship a great God who uses ordinary people like that person over there that I just really admire. No, I believe that God can use even me with all my faults, with all my shortcomings, If I am a child of God, if I am a new creation, I have the Spirit of God living in me, and God has prepared in advance good works for me to do. And so sometimes our faith is, if we're going to have faith in a great God, we have to believe that that great God can use us in great ways. I worship a great God who uses ordinary people to do great things, therefore I will respond to God's invitation for a second chance. Maybe you're listening this morning and um, you need to confess sin. Uh, you need to move from the flesh to the spirit. You need to move from death to life. And I would just say this morning that you need to believe that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that God created you and that he loves you and that you have sinned against him. And you need to believe that when you confess your sins, he has forgiven you. And, and you need to believe that. Believe that I've been forgiven. Believe that, that, that I'm a new creation. Believe that I have a new mission. Believe that God can and will use me to do his will. Maybe today you're starting a new journey with Jesus Christ by bowing your knee to him and confessing him as Lord and Savior. As a church, we are passionate about helping people love God. We are are very passionate about that. We're passionate, although we don't always hit the mark. We want to hit the mark. 
We want to do better in understanding what it means to love people around us in our community. We make mistakes about there all the time, and we want to purposely make disciples, that is, move people into relationship with Jesus Christ and build them up to make disciples. And it starts with believing that he is Lord, confessing our sins, believing that we've been forgiven, understanding that we're new creations, that we have a new mission, and that God can and will use us to do his will. We worship a great God who has done great things through ordinary people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, again coming to your word. We thank you for the things that you have done in and through ordinary people, broken people, uh, people who had difficult upbringings, people who were far away from you, uh, people who have many issues that you called them, you changed them, and, and you used them for your glory. God, we thank you that even if we preach a bad sermon, you can do great things with it. We thank you that even if we can love uh, not with all of our heart, but we try that you can use that. God, we, we thank you that we can keep coming to a God of second chances, of mulligans, of retakes, do-overs, and that you are molding us and shaping us into your image, preparing us for the kingdom of God. We thank you for the love that you have given us. We pray that you uh, would use us individually as a church and as a nation for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.